Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. All right, well, I want to welcome you to our new series at the movies in which we are exploring spiritual faith through the lens of summer blockbusters like Angels and Demons. Now, quick show of hands. How many of you have actually seen that movie? Have you seen that movie? Raise your hand. How many of you have actually read the book? Maybe you read the book. I had a chance to read it actually this spring. I love the book a lot more than I love the movie. Kind of that's how it usually goes with, you know, adaptations of novels. But this one's a page turner by Dan Brown, he of Da Vinci Code fame. And uh, really, you don't have to be familiar with the book or the movie to follow along here today because the story turns on an age-old conflict that you are probably familiar with, and that is science versus faith. Ron Howard, Tom Hanks, Ewan McGregor, each says the movie really derives its narrative tension from that ancient conflict. The plot is simple. A group of disgruntled scientists called the Illuminati, which means the enlightened ones, actually conspire to blow up the Vatican. That's how the story opens. Robert Langdon, he's the Harvard symbologist played by Tom Hanks. He's kind of called in to investigate the murder of a Catholic priest, and he discovers that a bomb made of antimatter is hidden in the Vatican, supposedly planted there by the Illuminati. And so as the story goes, during the Enlightenment, the Catholic Church was so threatened by men of science, inventors like Galileo, whose discoveries and theories were explaining more and more of the universe in logical terms. And the story goes that the Catholic Church feared if science could explain more and more of the universe, there'd be no room left for God. And so they got scared and they censored scientists. And in fact, people like Galileo and they punished them. So in revenge, a thousand years later, the Illuminati hatched this conspiracy to take down the Catholic Church by planting an antimatter bomb in the tomb of St. Peter underneath the Vatican. And in delicious irony, when that bomb goes off, the entire Vatican City will be consumed in light. That is ironic, because at the center of this conflict is the debate over creation. The Bible says God spoke and said what? Let there be light. And creation blazed forth into existence. Creation ex nihilo, something from nothing. Which science says that's impossible. I mean, one of the fundamental laws of physics says that matter can't be created out of nothing. Rational scientists believe that Genesis is really scientifically absurd. They have a theory of their own about the creation of the universe. It's called the Big... Anybody? Big Bang. Yeah. Billions of years ago, they posit, a single point of intensely focused energy erupted in cataclysmic explosion expanding outward to form the universe. And, and, And at the heart of this debate, at the heart of angels and demons is this debate about creation, this ancient battle between believers and evolutionists. I mean, can modern science and an ancient faith coexist, or are they forever destined to be sworn enemies? Don't give it too much away, but in the, in the opening scene of uh, Angels and Demons, the priest who is murdered, Leonardo Vetra, it's interesting because he's not just a priest, he's a scientist, and he had a dream. According to Angels and Demons, he hoped to prove that science and religion are two totally compatible fields, two different approaches to finding the same truth. My question for you is, do you think that's possible? What do you think? Might there be a way of looking at creation that actually shows the two are not in so much conflict as our modern minds kind of tend to think they are? That may be very hard for us to envision amidst today's kind of culture wars. There are shrill voices at both ends of the spectrums. You kind of have a rabid atheism over here on the left and kind of a dogged creationist on the right, and they seem more deeply entrenched than ever. 
But my question is this, is it possible this age-old conflict is more of a modern dilemma, kind of this either-or thinking versus a both-and perspective? I want to show you a couple of pictures that I think are absolutely compelling. This is from the real world. This is not angels and demons. I'm going to leave the big screen behind. Take a look at these pictures. I think give us an invitation to a new perspective about creation. On the one side, you see what a DNA molecule actually looks like when it's split in half. If you look down its barrel, this is from a 21st century genetics research pioneered by Francis Collins. He is the head of the Human Genome Project. And this is not the familiar double helix ladder of the DNA molecule, but actually the DNA molecule, if you look right down the vertical axis. On the other side, you see the rose window from York Cathedral in England, circa 12th century. Hundreds of years designed before we even knew what the letters DNA actually stood for. Compelling. Side by side, science and spirituality, the similarities are striking. The connections are compelling, to say the least. As the head of the Human Genome Project and a follower of Jesus Christ, Francis Collins makes the startling claim that spirituality and science may be actually much more compatible and connected than we think, as the two's pictures suggest. I want to introduce you to a couple of terms we're going to use as we have this conversation today. These are really two theological terms that theologians use to categorize the ways that God has chosen to reveal himself to humanity. The first is general revelation. Can you say that with me? General revelation. It refers to the general truths that can be known about God through nature. Basically, by looking around, you look at creation, the stars up in the sky, you look at the ocean waves at the beach, the animals that roam our planet, the building blocks of humanity. We can learn something about God's character just by observing nature, like this DNA molecule. That's general revelation. It tells us we are highly evolved creatures of breathtaking complexity. On the other hand, there is special revelation, which refers to the far more specific truths that can be known about God through supernatural means. Special revelation includes physical appearances of God, burning bush, dreams, visions, actually the written word of God, which records those, and most importantly, Jesus the Christ. Special revelation says that God decided to reveal everything humanity needs to know about who he is, and what he has done for us through the Bible, which is kind of what the rose window represents, doesn't it? An ancient faith that is founded on the revelation of Holy Scripture. General revelation, nature or science, and special revelation, Scripture or faith. Are you tracking with me? You got those two? That's as much theology as I'm going to drop on you today. Now my question for you would be, which one do you put more stock in? Which one do you believe is more substantive? I want to actually appeal to both sources today to make the case that science and faith may not be as incompatible as we think or as Dan Brown would have us believe. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Why don't you uh, take out your special revelation, your Bible right now, and open up to, let's see, let's go to, uh, oh, page one. How about that? Page one of Genesis, Genesis 1-1, which is kind of ground zero of the controversy. This records the moment of creation, and here is how it went down according to special revelation. The Bible opens with these five revolutionary words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it is a thundering statement of cosmic proportions. Genesis 1-1 is the moment of creation. And this is one of the most challenging concepts to confront the modern mind. 
The galaxy we live in right now, hold on to your chair. Everyone go like this right now in your chair. It is spinning right now. We're spinning at the incredible speed of 490,000 miles an hour. Do you feel it right now? And even at this breakneck pace that our galaxy goes around, it still needs over 200 million years to make one single revolution. Something out of nothing. Vastness. Expanse. Verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was what? He was hovering over the waters. That is an image, that is an ancient Hebrew metaphor. The Spirit of God hovering. You ever see a seagull at the beach like a bird over the water? What the ancients called the tobu wabahu, the watery deep, this void. And suddenly, verse 3, a blinding flash, and God said what? Let there be light. And there was light, which you have to admit, man, is a pretty cool way of creating I mean, we create stuff, but special revelation says God didn't like strain or groan or struggle, but he just, he spoke creation into existence. I mean, wouldn't that be nice to have that creative power? You know, if they leave your armchair, cheeseburger, lawn mode. (laughs) We can't do that. But when God said, let there be light in a flash, the whole universe just lit up. And God began creating everything we see and all that we can't see. That's what, that's what special revelation tells us. And it's quite an idea. Put special revelation over here for just a minute. Let me go general. See, light's fast. You wouldn't want to be standing in the way when light poured out with the mouth of God. You wouldn't want to duck in that moment because you see light right now as we sit here is screaming around the universe. It is the fastest thing that modern science knows about. Think about this. Light travels at 186,000 miles per what? Per second. Can you grasp that? Nod your head if you get that. My brain locks up on this whole thing, okay? Light's fast. You want to know what fast is? Who's fast here? Raise your hand if you're fast. I'm just going to pick someone in the first row. Get out here right now. Let's do a quick foot race. I'm going to show you what light is like. You want to race light? Let's do this. You get to receive a money-back guarantee. I'll give you $10,000 if you can beat me right now to the end of the line here. Who can get there? Ken Jang, get up here. Get your Nikes on. You ready? We're going to race right down the center aisle, a reverse altar call right now. Are you ready? One, two, three. I'll just let him go. Boom. 186,000 miles a second. That's how light's beaming right now, right around our universe. Boom. Light's moving on. Light's fast, man. You know how what that is an hour? You, know, you say, I don't, I don't really understand. That's try 669 miles an hour light is. <laughs> Right now, moving on around the universe. Man, that's faster than some of you go down the turnpike in the morning. That's unbelievable. And all of this came where? Out of the mouth of God at the moment of creation. And that's what lights up every star right now in our universe. Our sun, that's what right now you think of when you think of stars. Our sun is one of the stars in our galaxy, just one. Let's stay scientific. The sun right now is 93 million miles away from Earth. And I understand no one cares about that. Right now you're like, oh, this is a science lesson. Some of you are out this weekend enjoying its warmth. But you better be pretty, pretty grateful that it's 93 million miles away from Earth and not 83 million miles. Because if it were 83 million miles away from our Earth problems, (laughs) you're going to get more than a little bit of color this weekend. Sunscreen ain't going to help you out a lot if it was 83 million miles. You better be glad it's 93, and you better be glad it's not 110 miles away from Earth because it's real cold. I mean, north face cold. It's, you're frozen. Let me assure you, you ought to be glad that the sun is precisely 
93 million miles away from Earth, and it stays there. We don't want it any closer. We don't want it to go farther away. We want it just where it is. Because the light coming out of that star, that one star radiating from our sun is so fast that from the time it leaves the surface of the sun to the time it hits your skin, do you know how long that takes? That takes exactly eight minutes. Light, God said. I want my universe filled with glorious, burning light. Incredible, indescribable God. He is he is huge. One look up at the universe, and that becomes apparent very quickly, doesn't it? Have you looked up at the sky lately? I, I know, I understand. We live in a place where there's all that, you know, kind of, you don't see that too many stars. We've got light pollution, kind of the, the, the toxic fumes rising from the swamp and everything in New Jersey. But you, I understand that. But if you go out, go a little bit west or north. Go, I went up to Vermont skiing one time. Colleen and I did this. We were staying at this little lodge where we were skiing, and we walked out on the balcony. It was like 2 a.m. In, in, in the evening, and we were like, whoa, and we just looked up. Hundreds of thousands, millions of twinkling little stars like little diamonds on crushed velvet. And we just felt like we were falling back. What is creation saying to us? The heavens themselves are declaring something, folks. It's giving us a clue. God is Big. I mean, bigger than big, to use a tweener term. He is ginormous. He is indescribable. General revelation is telling us this every moment of our lives. The psalmist David, he was a shepherd, so he spent a lot of time looking up into the night sky. He told us in Psalm 19, he said, The heavens, what? Declare the glory of God. Let's read this together. The skies, what? Proclaim the work of his hands. And this is kind of cool here. Because what we have right now is special revelation, the Bible, pointing to general revelation to prove its points. Like, look at the heavens, the universe, which in turn point back to who? Special revelation, the creator God behind everything. This is the interplay that's going on here in Psalm 19 and all throughout the Bible. Special pointing to general, general pointing to special. Day after day, they pour forth what? Speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. The psalmist is saying, look up. Read the book of nature. What is it telling you? The universe is declaring the glory of this God. All you have to do is look up and see we are surrounded by complexity, order, and beauty in this universe. We know all about creation and all that we see and all that we don't, and we know about, it's just saying one thing, that someone huge, catalyze this thing. And today at this moment, is still expanding it at the speed of light. Our universe right now, it's a megaphone. I'm poor forthing speech. It's like a cosmic billboard saying, God is huge, ginormous. Look at the heavens and try to fathom how great he really is. Now, here's the deal, guys. I need to say this early on. You've probably figured it out. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biologist. I am not an astronomer. Some of you are. That's awesome. But I'm a student. I am a fellow learner. And I am debted to countless minds and thinkers and, and, and speakers like Francis Collins, who I mentioned, Carl Sagan, Louis Giglio, whose enlightened words I'm, I'm sharing with you today. But I don't have a PhD or anything. But I've learned that right now scientists are in this kind of tug-of-war debate about creation. In my research, I found out that one of the questions they're asking, are we truly the only populated planet? Are there other Earths? Are there other people out there? 
And we're not going to answer that question today. Just I, Let me just thanks very much. But scientists say that if Earth is the only inhabited planet, it sure seems like there's maybe a little bit of wasted space out there. Maybe just a little. I mean, the universe is a pretty big place. And that's a pretty big understatement. Let me state general revelation again. Astronomers estimate our universe is 156 billion light years wide. We, we measure the universe in light years. We don't use a tape measure. A light year is 69.6 million miles an hour. You know what that is in a year? That's 5.88 trillion miles in a year. And, and, and just understand that's big with a capital B. You get this? And scientists are confused because we're like, we're on this tiny little speck called Earth, and from down here, it looks to us like all the stars are bunched up and bumping into one another. When I stood on that, that, that little lodge balcony in Vermont, that's what it looked like. All the stars were bumping into each other. But that's what it seems like, but it's not even close in reality. The stuff in our universe is so far apart, scientists say, the relative proximity or the closeness of our planet, our galaxy, to the next closest thing, do you know what they use for an analogy? They say it's like taking a single pea. Can you get this? I got it. Oh, I just, oh, sorry, I just dropped the earth. A single pea. Oh, there goes the earth again, another planet. There goes Uranus. Take a look at this. They say it's like taking a single pea and pitching it into giant stadium in one corner, going up to the upper deck of giant stadium in the other side, and click. That's how close things are in our universe. Relative proximity. It is huge. Bigger than big. And you realize it's humbling because we are a flea on a pea in the sea of God's universe. Incredible. If it's just for us, I've got to just be honest here. It seems like it's a little bit of an overkill. <laughs> I'd say that's true. Would you agree? That if the universe is mainly for you and me to live in, then it is oversized. It's a bit too large. But what if this universe had a different purpose other than just to house us? What if it was intended to communicate something to us, like the psalmist says, he's, he's telling us something, it's pouring forth speech, if it's screaming at us day after day after day that there is a creator God and he is huge and this is about the size that he needs again. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, the vastness of creation is truly humbling. You know what, that's a good thing. Because if I, I think if there's something missing right now in our current conversation between science and faith, it's humility. See, right now, there are two polarizing camps out there that are pretty sure they've got the corner on the truth of creation. On the one hand, you have the, uh, the three horsemen of the atheistic apocalypse, right? Harris Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion. How many of you heard of that? It's a pretty hostile critique of religious faith. Dawkins argues that you cannot be an intelligent, rational thinker and still have faith in God. He says religion is pretty much the source of, of human misery and evil in this world. And what's more, he posits, evolutionary science in particular has made belief in God totally obsolete. On the other side of the aisle would be strict fundamentalists who would appeal to Genesis 1. They would open this up and they would say, this is a scientific text that you're reading to be interpreted literally. You can get a sense of that if you go to like uh, answersingenesis.org. It's an apologetics ministry that's kind of dedicated to defending a young earth creationism. And it posits that creation happened exactly literally as it says here, in six literal days. There were six 24-hour periods. Therefore, any mention of an evolutionary process threatens that. So evolution is anathema. It undermines faith. And you know what? The media is having a field day. Because the media loves controversy. 
And so they poured gas on this alleged war between science and faith. So they emphasized, what do you see every night, right? School board battles over evolution and prayer in the classroom or emphasize hot-button issues like stem cell research. And the media tends to paint the issue black and white. Like there are good guys and then there are bad guys, thinkers and non-thinkers, and nothing in between. And you know what? That's a shame. Because on either side, it's intellectual arrogance. It leaves people of faith, as well as secular skeptics, in a straitjacket. Because it's either or. You can be intelligent, rational, and scientifically minded, or you can be a simpleton and religious. And it's a pretty arrogant position to take. It's proud. It's not, it's not humble. See, by nature, guys, we tend to forget the lesson of the pea. That in relative proximity, we are fleas on a pea in the sea of God's greatness. That's who we are. And the reality is this, guys. Genesis is not primarily concerned with the how of creation, but the who. It answers the question, who created all we see? Not necessarily, now how exactly did that happen? Go ahead, look for yourself. Let's go back, primary text, Genesis 1. Look at verse 4. It says, God said, let there be light, and then there was evening and morning, day 1. And on day 2, he separated the water from the sky, so he's drawing boundaries. Day 3, God created land and produces vegetation. Do you see what's happening here? The Creator God, he's doing this in orderly fashion. He's creating realms in a, a distinct order. He's like sky, oceans, land. It's like he's laying out the canvas. And then on day four, he starts filling these realms in sequence. Look at verse 16. Look at this. Sun, moon, and stars he put in the sky to mark what? Seasons, days, and years. Fish and birds on day five to fill the waters in the sky. Day six, you got animals on, on the earth. And then finally, his crowning achievement, who? You. You and me. And folks, this was a mind-blowing concept at the time that the author of Genesis first wrote these words. See, up to this point, guys, there was no concept ever in all of civilization of a singular personal God. The best anyone could think was that there were gods and goddesses who were unpredictable and cruel as the weather, Mother Nature, but a singular monotheistic God who was concerned with order and boundaries and beauty and intricacy. Never! And so Genesis introduced at this moment a brand new world view in the beginning, who? God. And this is where people think that science and faith typically, boom, collide. Because there's the popular perspective that evolutionary science somehow disproves the biblical account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. It's like, oh, here's the head-on collision, right? Not necessarily. See, the relationship of science to the Bible hinges on how you interpret not only scientific evidence, but how you actually read biblical passages like Genesis 1. You guys may know this if you were in seminary for any time, probably nobody, that's okay. This is what they teach you. The goal of biblical interpretation is not to say, hmm, how does that make me feel? It's discover what did the author mean? What's the author's original meaning? And that means you interpret the text according to its genre. You ever hear the word genre? Raise your hand. I was an English teacher. It just means like, what type of writing is this, right? So, for instance, when we read Psalms like we did before, we interpret that as what? As poetry, right? The heavens pour forth speech. We know they don't have lips kind of just flapping there like that. It's a kind of a metaphor, pouring forth speech. When we read the Gospels, Luke, that is an eyewitness account. We read that as history. That's why we stake our lives on the claims of Christ, because he was literally came to this earth, lived a historical life. We read that literally. While poetic imagery 
is meant to be read metaphorically. Now check this out. We do this all the time in everyday life. You made that distinction, I guess, some point this weekend, I guess, when you communicated with someone. I'll give you an example. Say I was building a... Uh, Let's take, say I was building a deck on my house, okay, and I finally finished it. And those of you who know me are like, that would never happen. Just follow with me. You came to my house and you saw I have a new deck, but you didn't see any tools laying around, and you said, dude, so how long did that take you to build that deck? Now, I could give you a literal answer. I could say that deck took me eight years, 11 months, uh, seven days, until my father-in-law showed up with his, uh, with his Black & Decker gear, and then he finished the whole thing, Right? Or I could give you another answer. I could just simply say, uh, dude, it took me forever. <laughs> now, which one of those would be true? Which is true? Obviously, one was giving a literal answer. 13 years, 7 months, and the other was using hyperbole to get the point that it was a very long process. The difficulty comes, folks, in the places in the Bible where the genre or the type of writing is not explicitly identifiable. Like Genesis 1, that is a passage whose interpretation is up for debate among Christians, even those with a very high view of Scripture. Literalists who treat Genesis 1 as a scientific record would say it teaches that God created all life forms in a fully mature state in a literal period of six 24-hour days just several thousand years ago. That's where that whole young earth creationism theory comes from. But that is a huge stumbling block for scientific minds over here because they're like, are you kidding me? There's overwhelming evidence that different species mutated over time. They're, like, they're just like, just stop. What do you do with fossils? Millions of years old. Even more every day, right? What do you do with the genetic record that's now affirming that? And they're like, see, faith is for non-thinkers. It contradicts scientific fact. That's where the conflict occurs. But then there are other, actually, Christians who believe that God created life and are open to the possibility that he used natural selection to develop more complex forms from simpler ones. And this may have happened over longer periods of time. Not just a few years, but we're talking ages or eons. And that interpretation comes from Genesis 1. Not reading it literally, but poetically as a celebration and affirmation of the central truth that in the beginning, God created Again, the emphasis on the who, not the how. The point being, flee on a P in the sea. The Bible is not concerned so much with the how as it is with the who. And sincere people of faith can be intellectually honest and embrace the possibilities that those six days refer to a much longer period of time. As the Bible itself actually reminds us in Second Peter, it says this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a what? A thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. Translation, God's not on our watch. His calendar, his timing is very different than ours. Is it possible that those six days represent ages, maybe even millions of years perhaps, which allowed God to use an evolutionary process to create the world? You have to say perhaps. And that's not a soft view of Scripture. It doesn't undermine its authority. Rather, it's a sensitivity to genre. The Bible itself states that our human literal ways of measuring time are simply not at all like God's. So is Genesis 1 literal? When it says God created the heavens and the earth? Yes. Was it a literal six days, 24-hour periods? Or a billion years each? Answer? Good people. <laughs> 
who trust the Bible and think critically can disagree. And they can go to their corners and don't have to throw rocks at the other. And that takes humility, doesn't it, to acknowledge that. I mean, why must we choose between the two? That's how our world does it. To be a believer does not mean you have to be in conflict with biology or actually check your brain at the door. That's why a lot of people, are there, they, they like the, Jesus, but I don't know, I feel like I have to take my brain out and have a lobotomy. Today, an increasing number of prominent scientists are actually pointing to science as evidence for a creator. Most notable is Francis Collins, who I alluded to at the beginning of uh, this message. Collins is the head of the Human Genome Project. He is actually a winner of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He's a brilliant guy. He won that for his work mapping out the DNA molecule. That's what you see here, the building blocks of life. In the year that Dawkins wrote The God Delusion, Collins actually published The Language of God. A scientist presents evidence for belief. I can highly recommend this to you. It is an excellent, excellent book. And in it, Collins describes the scientific research that he went, underwent in the Human Genome Project as actually being one of the catalysts for the conversion from atheism, he was once an atheist, to Christianity. In an interview, he said this, one of the great tragedies of our time is this impression that's been created that science and religion have to be at war. I don't see that as necessary at all. And I think it's deeply disappointing that the shrill voices that occupy the extremes of this, spe of this spectrum have dominated the stage for the past 20 years. Listen to what he says. I see God's hand at work through the mechanism of evolution. If God chose to create human beings in his image and decided that the mechanism of evolution was an elegant way to accomplish that goal, who are we to say that is not the way? See, Collins looks at the evidence and he actually believes that the fine-tuning, the beauty, the intricacy in nature points overwhelmingly to a divine creator. His critical research hasn't withered his faith at all. It's actually deepened it. As he looked through his microscope into the DNA sequencing, he said this, he said, when you have, for the first time in front of you, this 3.1 billion letter instruction book that conveys all kinds of information and all kinds of mystery about humankind. You can't survey that going through page after page without a sense of awe. I can't help but look at those pages and have a vague sense that this is giving me a glimpse of God's mind. Whether you agree or not with Collins, do you, do you discern the humility in his perspective? Here is what Richard Dawkins and the popular media say can exist. Someone actually with a firm belief in evolution as a biological process, but who rejects it as an all-encompassing worldview that says there's no creator. See, I want you to hear me very clearly on this. Evolution as a worldview is problematic. It is incompatible with Christianity. Because if evolution is your wholesale worldview, it says everything we believe, feel, and do is just a biological cause that's the product of just random forces caused by no one in particular. In other words, you're an accident, I'm an accident, wouldn't you like to be an accident too? It's a very hopeful worldview, isn't it? There's no God guiding things. This entire world's totally random, and it takes it to its logical conclusion, everything will eventually burn up in the death of the sun. They don't make a lot of Hallmark cards with that theme, but... It's possible to acknowledge evolution as a process without embracing it as a worldview. I will say this again. There's a difference between affirming evolution as a scientific process that perhaps a creator God used and adopting it as a comprehensive worldview, a proof that no God exists. 
Whether you read this book or you look up at the billboard in the universe, certain facts are unmistakable. Creation didn't happen by itself. They can, scientists can take, trace it back to that moment of incredible light, that point of singularity is what they call it, and then they can go no further. But to say it just happened by accident, I don't know if I have that much faith. Think about it. It takes too much faith for me to be an atheist. Statisticians um, say that it's, it would be equivalent to this. If you took a jumbo jetliner, uh, an airplane, and took it all apart, you disassembled a 747, stripped it down to the very finest rivet and bolt, and then took every single part and scattered it across a field 10 miles wide. And then you took dynamite and blew that field up. And in the explosion, every piece and part of the jumbo jetliner met in midair and somehow reassembled itself and landed on the ground. That's the probability of this happening by accident. And you're like, well, I, I, I guess that could happen. Would you want to fly on that plane? Think about this. Think. Collins says that for the conditions for humanity, us, to not just evolve but survive and actually flourish, with the diversity of species we have, he says it's like we're living on the knife edge of improbability. He said our universe is arranged in such an elegant way that it's like there was this giant cosmic welcome mat put out for us, specially prepared for human beings. Just the right combination of gases and light and nuclear material and gravity that this wasn't by chance or accident because that's statistically negligible. Even agnostics agree. Some of you uh, know Stephen Hawking. He is a brilliant um, cosmologist actually at Cambridge University. You probably remember him from the 90s. He was in a wheelchair, a brilliant man. He said the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. It would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. This from an agnostic at the end of his life. A lot of prominent scientists have eventually come around to this conclusion. So while we may not know precisely how our world came into being, Genesis tells us who brought it about. And the marvels of our solar system point to a creative mind, a power that exceeds any human intelligence and strength. And folks, there's just like need right now for humility here. Can we just acknowledge that? Humility. And the idea, folks, that these two perspectives scientific fact and spiritual worldview are incompatible, well, more and more, they appear complementary. If you need a fresh injection of humility, let me show you a picture of our neighborhood. It's a picture of our portion of the Milky Way. I'm going to appeal to general revelation again. This is where we live, the Milky Way galaxy. It's a subdivision of God's neighborhood. It is 100,000 light years from one end of the galaxy to the other. Does anyone know where we reside? Most of you are like, probably right there, right? That's our electric bill. I'm probably don't have a great carbon footprint. No, no, we don't reside right here. No, no, no. We would pfft, dust. We actually reside about two-thirds of the way out between two little outer bands right about there with just enough light, just enough darkness, just enough oxygen, just enough gravity for a little solar system to reside. And here's a picture of the inside of our little galaxy, taken by a guy who has a PhD in the morphology of spiral galaxies. I don't even know what that means. I just like saying it. The morphology of spiral galaxies. This is a, a star-forming region in our galaxy in which stars are still being born every day. Our Milky Way galaxy, of which there are billions of stars. Our sun is just one of a billion stars in our little portion of God's sandbox. It's not the biggest star in our subdivision. It's not the grandest. It's just 
one in the Milky Way galaxy. General revelation. Isaiah 40 says this, Lift your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created? Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one, and let's read this together, calls them each by name. Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Check this out. If you were to count the stars in our Milky Way galaxy one by one and you counted one star per second, just let's just do this right now, take a quick time out. One, two, three, four, one per second. And you counted every star in just the Milky Way galaxy, just that little galaxy. You know how long it takes? 2,500 years, and God has called them out one by one and called them each by name. And there are hundreds of billions of other galaxies in God's sandbox. Wow. Folks, general revelation, special revelation, they're coming to us in stereo. He is huge, and we are small. The book of nature and the book of God Remind us of our true size. Fleas on a pea in the sea of God's creation. That's us. That's our place in the universe. And earth is home for you. And earth is home for me. This is a photo from Apollo 17. Some of you are old enough to remember this. It was the original mission that man took into outer space. It's an amazing picture of earth, isn't it, from space Stunned the world when we first saw it in 1972. We couldn't believe it. We were like, that's where we live. We've never seen it. Maybe you can put it together. Below you see Antarctica. Above it, the, the continent of Africa. And you, and you step back and go, whoa, because of all you don't see. Go ahead, make a little, little circle with your fingers like this and put your eye like this and just make it like a quarter right now as you look at it. Isn't that amazing? You don't see Mount Everest or Kilimanjaro. You don't see New York City or Times Square or London or Melbourne. There's no skyscrapers or peoples or cars. You just see Earth, <laughs> And in 1977, we sent another spacecraft out named Voyager to the furthest reaches of space to take pictures of the furthest planets in our solar system, like Saturn and Neptune, and it did an amazing job. Off we sent it, 440,000 miles an hour, taking snapshots of, our, of the planets and sending those pictures back to us on Earth. And in 1990, when the spaceship Voyager had been on the road for 13 years, it reached the edge of our solar system. And NASA scientists sent a message to Voyager on Valentine's Day in 1990, of all things. And they said, before you stop, Voyager, we want you to turn and take one last photograph of all the planets you've seen on your journey. And so Voyager turned around and started taking pictures. Didn't have a little landscape feature like you got on a camera today, so I had to take a series of, of big photographs, 60 of them, to capture it. And so Voyager went... Sixty times to capture what it's seen. And, and check this out. Every dot on those 60 photographs, every dot contained 640,000 pixels. Each pixel took five and a half hours to download. You think you got download problems. It literally took months for those 60 images to come back to Earth, but when it came back to Earth, NASA scientists combined it into one composite photograph that absolutely stunned the world. This is the picture that came back from Voyager from 3.7 billion miles away. Do you see it? 
It's called the pale blue dot. Do you see us? I'm going to put in perspective, the beams of color you see are the rays of the sun actually reflecting off Voyager. But suspended in one of those beams of light is a teeny, tiny little dot. Those of you who are sitting up front, you're like, I'm glad I got here early. If you can't see it, let me point this out for you. There we are. You see us? That's you. That's me. That's home. From 3.7 billion miles away. It is the furthest picture of Earth we will likely ever see in our lifetime. When they saw that picture, the entire scientific world, men of incredible knowledge and cognitive ability, were just stunned in awe at what they were looking at. Carl Sagan, famous astronomer in the 90s, he actually helped lead the Voyager team. He gave this the name the pale blue dot. In looking at it, he wrote these astonishing words. He said this, he said, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, Everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. He says every hunter, every forager, every hero and coward, every mother and father, every hopeful child, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. And he concluded... These words, he said, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. I agree with Sagan wholeheartedly, at least right up to that last phrase. Such self-importance, such posturings in our life. Again, Sagan said, how could we possibly think that in the midst of this vastness, anyone would come to save us from ourselves? And to that, I would offer this, the ultimate revelation to which science and Scripture both point. Jesus Christ, the Lord, has come. The ultimate revelation, the Son of God, Lord of all creation. Colossians tells us Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him, let's read it together, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created by Him and for him. Let's finish it together. Liquid, read out loud. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Our little speck swirling around right now at the speed of light flees on a pea in a swirling sea among billions in the vast blackness. Who created it? Who sustains it? Jesus Christ, your creator. Scripture says, God didn't just create man, he became one. Folks, ours is the story of the visited planet. We are not alone, not by a long shot. We may be on a P, but that pale blue dot God cared enough about to come live on himself and save for all eternity. Why? If you hear nothing else, know this. 
God may call those stars out by name one by one, but he knows your name too. This is no accident that you are here. You are no accident. You're far from it. Your mom and your dad may not have planned you, but God did. You are made for an eternal purpose. And you are a spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. And this is why he sent Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. He knew before that moment of singularity who you would be, where you would live, the day of your birth and the end of your life, this conversation we'd be having right now, and he calls you by name, we're told. Why? I mean, why did God create the universe? He had one reason in mind. To share it with those he loved. Children. Those made in his likeness. Icons of the living God. All the beauty and creativity and love that comes with it. You and I, my friends, whether we acknowledge this or not, we are the pinnacle of God's handiwork and we bear his image like nothing else in this known galaxy. And the Bible says that he loves each one of us as much as an infinite God who created this is capable of. And the ultimate revelation, the name of the one behind it all is who? Jesus Christ, the Lord. The Bible is not concerned with the how of creation, but the who. Look up. Who did all this? Jesus Christ, our creator. Why? Look in the mirror. You. You and me. You are a scientific miracle and a spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's never-ending universe. Our Creator has called you by name and He invites you to call Him by His. Have you done that? Maybe you have never done that. Maybe you have never put your trust in more than just a generic Creator, but you've called Him by His name, Jesus Christ. The reason Jesus came to this planet was to fix its brokenness and set it right once and for all, and repair actually our relationship with him. That, that's why Jesus died on the cross. When he came to this earth, he led a sinless life. He led the life we could never live, and he died the death that we deserved. But he came so that you won't have to be alone in this world, or in eternity, when forever starts. And he invites us to call him by name and put our trust in him. The Bible says, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be Saved, And if you have not called him by his name, Jesus, maybe this is the moment that God has actually preordained and called you to speak to him. I want to give you that moment. Just let's bow our heads, all our campuses. We want to take a moment to pray. I want you to pray to your creator, the Lord of the universe. Holy moment. Let's just take this moment in your heart. Quiet your heart. I'll lead us and then you can use your words. Father, we are in awe. We are ants. You are bigger than our greatest thought. We just thank you right now for your, your glory, your bigness, your power, your goodness. And we have no reason to be scared. Thank you, Father, that we can approach you confidently right now through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, who is before all things and is beyond all things, the Alpha and Omega, and we just acknowledge him right now, and I declare, Lord Jesus, I, my life, I, I, I'm giving to you again in this moment. I want to follow you. I want to trust you. You are to be trusted. You are my heavenly Father, Father in the heavens. If you have never prayed that, folks, right now, just with your heads bowed wherever you are, just acknowledge it. Say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, come into my life. Let me be part of your life. 
Cover my sins. Put your spirit in my heart and stamp me for eternity. I believe today. This is your moment to believe today. You are putting your faith in God. Just all heads bowed. Just shoot your hand up real quick. Our campus pastors are watching. They want to encourage you. Shoot your hand up real quick. You're praying to God. This is your moment. You're saying, I'm stepping in today. The family of God, I'm trusting. I'm believing. Just shoot your hand right up where you are. Father, you see the people right now who are coming to you in humility. And now, Lord, receive them with generosity in the open arms of a loving God. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, I want to welcome you, not to church, but to the family of God. You have a heavenly Father who wants to get to know you. He calls you by name. Your life has meaning. You have a purpose, and we'd love to help you learn about what that is. So today, let your campus pastor know after the service that you prayed that prayer because we're here to help you. That's our, that's our whole purpose, our purpose as a church. And look, if you're with us um, and you are not a follower of Christ, I need to just tell you right now, you are totally welcome here. We're not going to twist your arm. We're not going to ask you to check your brain at the door or have a lobotomy to come to church. I hope you will continue to kick the tires of the Christian faith because it is a faith of the heart as well as of the mind. Wherever you are, I hope together we can grasp hold of something essential today, our common need for the humility of Christ. Amen? Thanks for being here, guys. I'll see you guys next week.